This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Double Indemnity from 1944, directed and written by Billy Wilder, co-written by Raymond Chandler, starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. Double Indemnity was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director for Billy Wilder, Actress Barbara Stanwyck, screenplay for Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, cinematography, music, and sound, but did not win any. Widely regarded as a classic, it is often cited as having set the standard for film noir. In 1992, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. In 1998, it was ranked number 38 on American Film Institute's list of the 100 best American films of all time. And in 2007, it placed 29th on their 10th anniversary list. Wilder considered Double Indemnity his best film in terms of having the fewest scripting and shooting errors, and always maintained that the two things he was proudest of in his career were the compliments he received from James M. Cain, the novel writer of Double Indemnity, and from Agatha Christie for his handling of her Witness for the Prosecution from 1957. So let's start here, Dad. Is Phyllis Dietrichson the greatest on-screen femme fatale of all time? Possibly. The only one that I would say may rival would be Mary Astor as Bridget O'Shaughnessy from Maltese Falcon. Yeah, I guess I hadn't necessarily considered her, but now thinking about the movie and kind of the way that her character structured, I can buy that, that she's in the same kind of general category. Well, I think you look at any of those hard-boiled writers, whether it be Mickey Spillane, Raymond Chandler, that whole genre of crime novels, I think they all had a disdain for women to some extent, because the women were always the most evil of the characters. Some other ones that I would put in the running, so a movie we have had on the list at times but haven't yet gotten to, Chinatown with Faye Dunaway's character, Evelyn Mulray. You could also go for Sharon Stone's character, Catherine Trammell from Basic Instinct. I don't know if I would consider in the same vein as some other ones, but Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard, a movie we covered last year, also a Billy Wilder project. Jessica Rabbit from Who Shot Roger Rabbit. That's not a bad one. Lynn Bracken from L.A. Confidential, Kim Basinger's character that she won an Oscar for. Then you have Fatal Attraction, Alex Forrest, Glenn Close's character. Yes, really creepy. Amy Dunn from Rosamund Pike. Gone Girl, the movie with Ben Affleck. She's a modern one that I would put in that category, too, for what it's worth. Well, and then you have to add Kathleen Turner because Body Heat with William Hurt was a remake of this in a more modern sense. And she was pretty uh, nasty throughout that film. Her in the category, but I guess then what puts Phyllis Dietrichson on this list of the great ones? Just because she was setting up not one, not two, but three men. 
I think it's got to be, especially with all of these femme fatales, there's got to be a certain ruthless streak within them. One of the scenes we're going to talk about later is the second time they're in the market and she just has this turn where it's what they would refer to in wrestling as the heel turn because you see where he's trying to plead with her to back out of going for the insurance money. And all of a sudden she's become stern and it's like a a complete change. She's no longer the naive partner. She's the one who's been orchestrating things all along. And it's kind of that, Oh, moment of the film that, Oh, okay. That's what we're dealing with in this character that I think is so fascinating with her. And a lot of the other femme fatales is when you kind of, get past the facade that they're trying to portray and get to their underpinnings of either their derangement or their just absolute ruthlessness in carrying out whatever motivation they have. I mean, they're almost sociopath in that they have no remorse, no conscience. They just are willing to manipulate in order to achieve an end, no matter who is involved and whatever tools, vehicles they have available or at their disposal to effectuate what they want. So I mentioned at the top that this is widely credited as being one of the original film noirs. So even though the term wasn't used till the 70s, this historically has a creditation for being kind of one of the forerunners of that genre and what a lot of people have referred to in this line of cinema. I believe the original film noir was the Maltese Falcon. I think that that's where you see the whole concept. But what this film did with cinematography is to create a darker image and use light and contrast as an effective part, almost another actor or character within the film. It didn't start it. But this film started the refinement of the genre. So in kind of looking up the historical context of this, it seems like widely there's a subcategory of pre-noir or proto-noir films, starting with Fritz Lang's M, which we'll eventually get to from 1931. And that kind of started this, this kind of string of protagonists that had some major flaws to them or were outright bad people. You would think back to the Cagney films or even the Edward G. Robinson films, the crime dramas, the mob films from the 30s. That had a lot of this in there. The anti-hero. Yes, an anti-hero. Thank you. And so even though I would say that a lot of people credit the Maltese Falcon as being the, the first modern film noir that this really creates more of the structure of what a lot of other noirs are. It has the narration over the top that you don't exactly get in the Maltese Falcon. It has a much more flawed protagonist. It has the more centrally placed femme fatale, and you don't have the character technically winning in the end. And I would say those are all staples of what became the noir genre as opposed to the Maltese Falcon, where things kind of work out in the end. It's kind of like in the art world. The first painting that was done that was impressionist piece was done by Manet, 
and I can't remember the name of it, but if you look at it, it's not truly an impressionist piece, but that's the cross between the traditional paintings and what became impressionist art. The Maltese Falcon started the trend, but this film, I think, refined it and kind of set the parameters of what the films were to be. So I guess then by that definition, Maltese Falcon and a couple of the other films in between would be more of the transitional films. And this is the one that really first gets to that place that establishes the formula. Kind of the way that we talked about, I think, Goldfinger when it came to James Bond films. You had a lot of things that they were bringing into them from Dr. No and from Russia with Love, but it wasn't till Goldfinger that we really established the formula that would end up becoming the successful Bond franchise. Yes, where they really kind of honed it in and figured out exactly what the formula was. I do want to mention that this is also the same year as Gaslight, which is another film that we'll be covering at some point that has a lot of similar nature to it. So I don't think that this is a movie off to itself that has the complete impact. It's not something that started and it had so many ripples because it was so incredibly novel by itself that a lot of films were kind of leading into this. But this is classically probably one of the best of the bunch. I was looking at a list of potential noir films. Wilder supposedly had another noir film the year after in a Best Picture winner in The Lost Weekend that I wouldn't have normally considered a noir picture per se. That to me is a little bit different, but that's still a flawed character. No, and what we're talking about with noir is light and shadow. I mean, if you think about The Lost Weekend... Ultimately, the defining moment is the bottle being hidden in the light fixture. So it's creating both light and shadow in and of itself. I suppose that's true. I would say that the more classically categorized noir film of Wilder's would be obviously Sunset Boulevard, which we've discussed previously. Yes. But there's a string of these between roughly 44 and uh, like the mid-50s. Well, actually, I think Citizen Kane is a film noir. Yeah, that was actually on the historical list as well for the narration point of view, how it's lit as far as production setting and how it's kind of laid out that it it could be considered that. And it was not necessarily a film that I would have considered a noir, but if you're doing kind of the loose associations, like I thought some of these historical places did, I think you could place it in that because it's not like it's a very easily defined genre. So what is your relationship to this film? This is a film that I saw while I was in college. As I indicated, I think multiple times, my freshman year of college, I was in Chicago. I had my own TV in my dorm room. I didn't have class until 8 o'clock at night on Mondays. So I would sit in my room and study for the week, but I would have the TV show on or TV on, and WGN every Monday morning at 9 always had an old classic movie. And so I saw, I remember seeing this film, I saw The 39 Steps, I saw The Glass Key, I saw The Maltese Falcon. Every week it was a film like this, and I was just enamored at that point in time and couldn't get enough of them. So I almost made a point of it 
of trying to get my work done a little bit early so I could spend every Monday morning watching one of these films. As per usual with a lot of these 40s and 50s films, I came to it through you. And I think this is only the second time I've viewed it. And I've said before that I think my second viewing is almost better more often than my first, especially when we're doing it for the show. I just think I have a different appreciation for some of these movies. I think what this movie ends up being about, though, and that's normally our next question, attraction, deceit, and just getting in over your head. Greed, sex, and betrayal. But the sex is just a tool. It's a weapon. I didn't use the word, specifically use the word love because there's no aspect of love in this. This is ultimately a situation where the female is using her sexual attraction, her sexual wares, in order to effectuate action that's supposed to support her ultimate greed. Aptly said. Do we want to give everybody some background on this film then? Sure. Late at night, an insurance salesman, Walter Neff, Fred McMurray, stumbles into his office, bleeding from a wound in his left shoulder. He starts to record a memo for Barton Keyes, Edward G. Robinson, a claims investigator for Neff's insurance company. The memo recounts how Neff fell for a client's wife, Phyllis Dietrichson, Barbara Stanwyck, and how the two plotted to murder her husband and collect his accidental insurance policy. Knowing that a clause in the contract pays double if he's killed on a train, Neff plots the murder and the method to make it look like he fell from the train. However, things soon start to unravel as Keyes figures out the plot, and Phyllis proves more than Neff's lover. Will the two get away with murder, and will they collect the double indemnity? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Billy Wilder as the director slash writer, Raymond Chandler as the co-writer, Fred McMurray as Walter Neff, Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis Dietrichson, Edward G. Robinson as Barton Keyes, Porter Hall as Mr. Jackson, Gene Heather as Lola Dietrichson, Tom Powers as Mr. Dietrichson, and Byron Barr as Nino Zacchetti. Recognition for this film? Double Indemnity was released on July 3rd, 1944. It grossed roughly $5 million on a budget of 980000 and was a popular hit that year. Double Indemnity was nominated for the seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director, Actress, Screenplay, Cinematography, Music, and Sound, not winning any. Best Picture instead went to Going My Way with Bing Crosby. The American Film Institute has included the film on these lists. From 1998, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies at number 38. 2001's AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills at number 24. 2002's AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions at number 84, 2003's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains with Phyllis Dietrichson coming in as the number 8 villain of all time, and finally 2007's AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition where it came in at 29th. Double Indemnity currently holds a 97% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 95 score on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? James M. Kane based his novella on a 1927 murder perpetrated by a married Queens, New York woman, and her lover whose trial he attended whilst working as a journalist in New York. 
In that crime, Ruth Snyder persuaded her boyfriend, Judd Gray, to kill her husband, Albert, after having him take out a big insurance policy with a double indemnity clause. The murderers were quickly identified, arrested, and convicted. The front page photo of Snyder's execution in the electric chair at Sing Sing has been called the most famous news photo of the 1920s. Did you know? Author James M. Kane later admitted that if he had come up with some of the solutions to the plot that screenwriters Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler did, he would have employed them in his original novel. Did you know? Raymond Chandler hated the experience of writing the script with Billy Wilder so much that he actually walked out and would not return unless a list of demands were met. The studio acceded to his demands, and he returned to finish the script with Wilder, even though the two detested each other. Wilder claimed that he flaunted his womanizing ability at the time just to torment the sexually repressed Chandler. Did you know? The film was nominated for seven Academy Awards, but lost out to Going My Way from 1944. Billy Wilder was so seriously annoyed at Leo McCary's sweep that when McCary's name was called for best director, Wilder stuck out his foot into the aisle, tripping McCary up. Wilder would get his revenge the following year when The Lost Weekend won four Oscars, while McCary's The Bells of St. Mary's only picked up one. Seems a little petty. Did you know? Edward G. Robinson's initial reluctance to sign on largely stemmed from the fact he wasn't keen on being demoted to third lead. Eventually, he realized that he was at a transitional phase of his career, plus the fact that he was getting paid the same as Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray for doing less work. <laughs> Did you know? The house used as Barbara Stanwyck's character's home still stands today at 6301 Quebec Drive. Did you know? The blonde wig that Barbara Stanwyck is wearing throughout the movie was the idea of Billy Wilder. A month into shooting, Wilder suddenly realized how bad it looked but by then it was too late to reshoot the earlier scenes. To rationalize this mistake, in later interviews, Wilder claimed that the bad-looking wig was intentional. On viewing the film's dailies, production head Buddy G. De Silva remarked of Barbara Stanwyck's blonde wig, we hired Barbara Stanwyck, and here we get George Washington. <laughs> I always thought the wig looked terrible. Yes. Did you know... When Walter Neff first meets Phyllis Dietrichson, much attention is paid to her ankle bracelet. Urban legend states a married woman wears an anklet to indicate she is married, but often available to other men. Doesn't mom often wear one? Yes. Hmm. Hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't either. Mm. Did you know? This film came out in 1944, the same year David O. Selznick released Since You Went Away. Part of the campaign for the latter film were major ads that declared, Since You Went Away are the four most important words in movies since Gone with the Wind, which Selznick had also produced. Billy Wilder hated the ads and decided to counter by personally buying his own trade paper ads, which read, Double indemnity are the two most important words in movies since Broken Blossoms. <laughs> Referring to the 1919 D.W. Griffith classic. Yeah. Selznick was not amused and even considered legal action against Wilder. Here's the part you'll like. Alfred Hitchcock, who had his own rocky relationship with Selznick, took out his own ads which read, The two most important words in movies today are Billy Wilder. <laughs> yeah. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode... Next week, we will be discussing Rocky II from 1979, 
Directed, written by, and starring Sylvester Stallone with Carl Weathers, Talia Shire, Burt Young, Burgess Meredith, and Tony Burton. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Best performance, Dad, who do you have? I have Fred McMurray. I thought he had uh, the most to do, and he had a really difficult job to come across as both likable and shady at the same time. So I ended up nominating him for most charismatic because of kind of what you just mentioned. I think he has the most difficult job because he has to pull off the somewhat magic trick of not only making you feel reprehensible towards this character, making sure that you understand how vile he is. I mean, they mention at least twice how rotten he is, but you still feel a level of sympathy for him, so you're rooting for him by the end. And that's not an easy thing to do. Clearly. And this is not something he had done before. He had been primarily in romantic comedies and light comedies. And Billy Wilder picked him for this, and he wanted nothing to do with it because he didn't think he was capable of doing it. And Wilder thought he would be perfect in it. Well... He was. So my best performance went to Wilder. I thought it was somewhat of the obvious choice, given that I think most of the accolades for this film in Legacy usually go to Wilder for creation and adaptation of the novel, creating kind of the formula for what noir would become, and even to a certain degree, the neo-noir by extension. And so I just think that from a writing standpoint, a directorial standpoint, and all of the things that he put into this film, it clearly has his unique flair and stamp on it, and I just thought it was the obvious approach to go with best performance due to the amount of things he he brought in and created for this movie. I had him as secondary because even though his pacing, his direction, his writing was instrumental, I think if he has the wrong actor playing... Neff, it fails. And that's why I flipped them, why I went with McMurray first and Wilder second. I think there is an argument, though, to be made that you've kind of already stumbled upon that he picked McMurray in order to do this part and by so doing gets credit for what he's coming into. Also, I think a lot of actors would even agree that a lot of what makes an actor capable of doing certain things is the direction And I have to imagine that given Wilder's streak, he had to be a somewhat dictatorial director. Well, I mean, we always talk about the Mount Rushmore of directors, and I'll honestly say that there's clearly three on my Mount Rushmore. I have yet to figure out exactly who number four is, but it's Wilder, it's Hitchcock, it's Spielberg. And I'm trying to figure out who my four is. And I really don't have much of an argument for that. After that, I mean, you're, you're probably picking between hairs. If, if you're going to go like John Ford or you're going to go William Wyler, you might go Scorsese. You know, some of those that are the modern directors, some might put in a Tarantino. I just don't know. But those three, due to their diversification of different genre and their overall popularity but critical success it's not something that a lot of directors seem to have i just think they place themselves in a category a little bit above most of the rest of their counterparts 
My best secondary was Edward G. Robinson. I think he's absolutely fantastic in this movie. For being the third lead and kind of only being in the movie probably, what, half the time? Maybe even less? He really makes his stamp on the movie. And even though he's not on screen, he's a presence even when everything else is going on between Stanwick and McMurray because they're feeling his pressure. He's always the guy that McMurray's afraid of and thus creates all of the tension and the action of the second and third acts of the film. Robinson has always been kind of somebody I thought was extremely interesting. He played a heavy early in his career. He played it again a few, you know, a few times later in his career. But he also had ability to play a certain character, such as in this film. But he was extremely well-versed, very articulate and intelligent. He had probably one of the great art collections in all of Hollywood. I mean, when he passed, his art collection went for millions of dollars. So he was a very unique individual. And I think his speech on suicides, that might be some of his best work in this movie. It's going to be a quote that I nominate later on in the show. Sure. Most charismatic for you? This is going to be a little unusual. John F. cites the cinematographer. Okay. I think he established a mechanism, a method, a standard for how these films or film noir is to look right down to the shadows where it's coming through the, the, the blinds and it looks like Neff is in prison behind bars based on the light and shadow. I mean, it was just a phenomenal job of, of cinematography. And so I thought the cinematography, the light and the darkness was really the fourth lead in this film. I think it really dictated how you thought, felt, and reacted to the other characters. There are two particular scenes that I would point to as things that I noticed as far as the cinematography. One being the final confrontation between Dietrichson and Neff, where most of it's in shadow. All the lights are turned off and you just have some very little light. And it's not necessarily focused on their faces. You get a little bit of backlighting in order to obviously see them in the dark. But I just thought that was a unique version of trying to tell a story because I don't think many films were doing that level of darkness and trying to adapt a story to it. The other one I thought was very well done, mostly just due to camera placement, was when they have the straight on shot of McMurray talking to Edward G. Robinson as he's leaving his apartment and you can see Stanwick behind the door, but you can see the placement of the two and how they're juxtaposed within in the frame. I thought that was expertly done for how they used picture to tell the tension of that moment. It was kind of like a Chekhov's gun situation. Sure. You want to go to best scene? Who did you have for charismatic? I said McMurray earlier. Oh, that's right. Sorry. All right. That's fine. We'll go to best scene. So I have nominated the opening, McMurray stumbling into his office. First visit, so the first time he goes up to the house. 
Dietrichson visits Walter, so the first time she comes to his apartment. Night of the murder, so it skips a little bit of the kind of planning and the back and forth, just because I think there are some bigger scenes to hit. Then on the train, suicide question mark, which is the scene where the, I don't know, the senior vice president, is that what his title was? Gets into it with Dietrichson about whether he thinks it was a suicide or not. Then we have Key starts to figure it out where Robinson comes to Neff's apartment, which I think is a great scene. All the Way, which is the heel turn by Dietrichson in the market. Zacchetti, which is when Keyes starts to put the finger on Zacchetti. Final Confrontation, so as I mentioned before, the final confrontation between Neff and Dietrichson where the gunshots are fired. And then Keyes finds Walter. Did I miss any that you'd like to highlight? No. Okay. So out of these, what do you think is the best scene? I like the setup. I like the period from from Walter's apartment to the plotting of the murder itself leading into the murder because the pacing is so quick. It gives you the feeling like if you were going to commit a murder, you would be anxious. The adrenaline would be running. And the film gives you that palpable feel. I, I just think that Wilder's direction in that regard was so well done. To me, that is just, you feel the tension, you feel the the anxiety they're feeling and going forward with the murder. While I do like that portion of the film, I was actually more attracted to the second half of it after the murders already happened. Because I think as good a job as Wilder does, because you're curious to see how they pull this whole thing off and what they've planned. So there's a unique curiosity going into those scenes. I think that the real tension of the film is kind of like a movie we discussed a little while back or a few weeks ago, Rope, where you've got the body in the trunk the whole time. Well, it's a matter of, are these guys going to get caught? And is Keyes going to get onto it? So as much as I like the suicide scene, I think probably the best scene is Keyes starts to figure it out and he visits Walter in his apartment. And then at the same time, it's when Phyllis is coming to meet him for the first time after the crime. So I think between those two things, to me, that's the best scene because that's got the most tension in it. It's kind of like the bomb under the table that we've talked about from the quote from Hitchcock multiple times. I just thought that was a wonderfully developed scene for the amount of setup that needs to go into it because you need the first hour of the film in order to get to that and make it work. And I thought he did it exquisitely. What's your favorite scene? My favorite scene in the uh, most indelible is the closure. It's the murder scene and it's the actual, the scene between Neff and Keyes where the reveal takes place. Okay. Cause I was going to say this movie really has like two closings. Yeah. Those two scenes in combination are both my favorite and the most indelible. I have Keys Finding Walter as my most indelible as well. I don't have the final confrontation in here. To me, my favorite scene, because it was kind of the O moment of the film, was Dietrichson's heel turn in the marketplace, where it's, oh, you're that lady. Okay, He's clearly gotten outplayed on this whole thing. And so it kind of makes the rest of the movie fit together. And from a logical standpoint, I think that it brought a level of intrigue I didn't have 
well, I shouldn't say that. I did have, but aided to or pushed it beyond what I it had been to that point. Sure. But for me, having watched this twice, I remember Keyes finding him in the office. That moment where he realizes Keyes is behind him and that he's been listening in on the conversation or what he's been recording. And then that kind of almost father-son-like relationship to end the movie that I didn't get the first time I, I saw it, but in relation to what we talked about last week with Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth and Reservoir Dogs, I got a lot of the same vibes out of that one this week that I did for last week as well. Sure. So let's take our second break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at gmodepodcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we do. Jim Bohannon, 78 American broadcaster. He was involved in America in the Morning, Larry King Show, and Face the Nation, among others. He hosted the Jim Bohannon Show on Westwood One for 30 years and was in the journalism business for 50 he was originally the backup to Larry King when he was only on the radio and then assumed his slot when King moved to TV in 1993. A mainstay in the radio game for a long, long time. Clearly a presence that I think people of your generation would probably know offhand, but probably not a lot from mine. Yes, in fact, as an insomniac for basically since I was in junior high, I've slept with a radio on because if I uh, wake up overnight, and listen to that instead of start thinking, I can fall back asleep. So I've had about uh, 45 years of sleeping with a radio on. Westwood One was one of those. I used to listen to Larry King on the radio, and then Jim Bohannon after that, among others. We also lost David English. He was a uh, 76 British actor. He was in Bridge Too Far and Liz Tomania among others. So he did some very small bit parts of acting, but he's primarily known as the godfather of English cricket, helped start the career of thousands of cricketers with his Bunbury School festivals, and his real work on A Bridge Too Far was to teach Robert Redford cricket. So I don't think he was actually in the movie, but I could be wrong on that. Another part of his collection of interesting facts he was also the manager for both the Bee Gees and Eric Clapton in the 70s. Interesting. John Aniston, 89, Greek-born actor, was uh, in a lot of soap operas. Days of Our Lives, Love of Life, and Search for Tomorrow. Yeah, he actually just received a Daytime Emmy Lifetime Achievement Award for his work on Days of Our Lives earlier this year. He's also famously known as the father of Jennifer Aniston. Sven Bertil Taub, 87, Swedish singer and actor uh, involved in The Eagle Has Landed, Puppet on a Chain, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And then finally, Kevin Conroy, 66, American actor. I know that you're going to have more of a relationship with him than I did. He was involved in Batman, the animated series, Search for Tomorrow, and O'Hara. This is a personal loss for me in a way that a lot of the times we have 
people on the show and we memorialize, I don't have much of an attachment to. Kevin Conroy has been a part of my life for probably as much as I can remember because I watched Batman, the animated series and the animated movies like Mask of the Phantasm or Sub-Zero, the one that I think you bought for me on VHS in like 1997. And he's been the voiceover of Batman since 1992 in just about every video game, every animated movie, every time they reproduced one of the comics that was animated. He was in such a partnership with Mark Hamill doing the Joker that people have argued that he could literally be the best actor to ever portray Batman because he just was the voice of Batman for as long as I can remember. And remember, starting in 1992, he was running against Michael Keaton being Batman, then he was running against Val Kilmer, then he was running against George Clooney, although I don't think that was much of an effort, and eventually (laughs) Christian Bale and Ben Affleck. And yet, I think for a certain amount of kids that were from the 90s, this is their guy. And not being able to hear his gravelly, raspy voice on the new Batman games or whatever else, I I just, it's hard for me to fathom. I didn't even know he was sick. He apparently had some uh, intestinal cancer. And so this is a good spot to recommend everybody, especially over a certain age, get your regular colonoscopy checks. But I don't know. I mean, there's been enough outpouring in the comic book and comic book fan community for the last week. Mark Hamill's had some very nice tributes from working with him. One of the aspects in his obituary that I found out and wasn't aware of is he was actually famously a gay man and did some work during the 80s on Broadway with, I think, who is now his or was his husband, particularly on one play that was about the AIDS epidemic that I guess was very moving. And I guess I just never knew much about his private life. For me, he was always just the character. And it's like a part of my childhood died. So I'm going to miss him very much. So we recognize all of these here with a moment of silence in their honor for their contributions. Thank you. All right, let's go to best funniest lines. First one I have up, Walter Neff. Do I laugh now or wait till it gets funny? Neff, afraid, baby? Diedrichson, yes, I'm afraid, but not of keys. I'm afraid of us. We're not the same anymore. We did it so we could be together, but instead of that, it's pulling us apart. I have to say, every time Fred McMurray says the word baby in this film, it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. (laughs) Uh, Okay. It's just so awkward. Yeah, well, yeah. Phyllis, we're both rotten. Walter Neff, only you're a little more rotten. Neff, I killed him. I killed him for money and a woman. And I didn't get the money and I didn't get the woman. Edward S. Norton, that witness from the train, what was his name? Barton Keyes. His name was Jackson, probably still is. Keyes. The street tricks and business. It's murder, and murders don't come any neater. As a fancy, a piece of homicide as any ever run into. Smart, tricky, almost perfect, but 
I think Papa has figured it out. It's beginning to come apart at the seams already. Barton Keys. A claims man is a doctor and a bloodhound and a cop and a judge and a jury and a father confessor all in one. And you want to tell me you're not interested? You don't want to work with your brains? All you want to do is work with your finger on the doorbell for a few more bucks a week. Neff, you can't get away with it. You want to knock him off, don't you? Dietrichson, that's a horrible thing to say. Neff, what do you think I was, anyway? A guy that walks into a good-looking dame's front parlor and says, Good afternoon. I sell accident insurance on husbands. Have you got one that's been around too long? Phyllis, I'm a native Californian, born right here in Los Angeles. Walter Neff, they say all native Californians come from Iowa. I'm out. I got two more. Jackson, these are fine cigars you smoke. Barton Keys, two for a quarter. Jackson, that's what I said. (laughs) Yeah. And then finally, the quote I mentioned before. Norton, Keyes' boss, has just tried unsuccessfully to convince a client that her husband's death was a suicide. Barton Keyes. You know, you uh, ought to take a look at the statistics on suicide sometime. You might learn a little something about the insurance business. Edward S. Norton. Mr. Keyes, I was raised in the insurance business. Barton Keyes. Yeah, in the front office. Come now, you've never read an actuarial table in your life, have you? Why, they've got ten volumes on suicide alone. Suicide by race, by color, by occupation, by sex, by seasons of the year, by time of day. Suicide, how committed, by poison, by firearms, by drowning, by leaps. Suicide by poison, subdivided by types of poison, such as corrosive, irritant, systematic, gaseous, narcotic, alkaloid, protein, and so forth. Suicide by leaps, subdivided by leaps from high places, under the wheels of trains, under the wheels of trucks, under the feet of horses, from steamboats. But Mr. Norton, of all the cases on record, there's not one single case of suicide by leap from the rear end of a moving train. And you know how fast that train was going at that point where the body was found? 15 miles an hour. Now, how can anybody jump off a slow-moving train like that with any kind of expectation that he would kill himself? No, no soap, Mr. Norton. We're sunk, and we'll have to pay through the nose, and you know it. All right, you ready for the Stanley rubric? I am. All right. Legacy is up first. You want to go first or second? I'll go second. All right. For me, this is an easy five for the industry. I think this is a classically well-regarded film. I think this holds up in the annals of, I guess, anybody that would be teaching a historical film class. And if you're covering the film noir genre, this has got to be mentioned in probably the first five films that you come up with. So for me, it's an easy five from that side of things. But on the opposite side, as far as an audience, this just doesn't have the name recognition that you would have for some of those other classics. I think people have heard of, well, especially now Gaslight in modern context. That was not a film that had held up until recent years. But Citizen Kane that we mentioned, the Maltese Falcon, and some other ones. This is just not one of them. And by extension, I'm going to give it a rather low two, just because I don't think there are a lot of people that know about this film. I know this is one that you love and appreciate. It's just not something that I think resonates with the general population. If you say the words double indemnity, no one will know what you're talking about because they clearly haven't read their insurance contract. Correct. So that's a seven for me. Ironically, I have the exact same numbers. 
Yeah, I think the the film industry thinks this is great, but most people don't recognize the film. And having even people of my generation, Fred McMurray was was Steve Douglas on My Three Sons. To see him being a devious murderer in a film, most people, even my generation, are going to go, huh? Because if you saw him in a film, it was like Disney's flubber. <laughs> Not at him being a, a devious, conniving murderer. So, no, it's it's a two. So, that's where I came up with a seven. Do you need help with the math? If you'd like to. Uh, seven. All right. So, we have a seven average between us. Impact significance. For me, again, this is a five for the industry. It got a lot of awards attention. I think it was critically praised at the time. I think most people, while not recognize it in the same historical context, because the words film noir weren't used until the 70s, I still think this was a highly appreciated and popular movie of the time. So it's a five for the industry. And I actually think trying to do as much legwork as I can, it's a little difficult on box office draw before, I think, like 1960 for the most part. But I think this was a well-appreciated audience film and clearly one that had a lot of name recognition at the time because there were actual protests for the subject matter of the film that actually aided to its box office numbers. So I went with a 4 for a 9 overall. I went with a 4.5 for the industry simply because it was an Oscar snub. I don't think we've done that before, though, for films that are Oscar snubs. Well... I think at the time, some critics were a little suspect because of the subject matter of the film. So those two reasons, I went with a 4.5. I couldn't go with a 5. But as far as the industry, or excuse me, as far as the public, I went with a 4 there. I, I was shocked when I'm reading through and doing the research. Kate Smith, who did God Bless America, led the anti double indemnity crusade like why but and then again there's a lot of things that go on even today that i go why so in other words you're gonna tax this movie for not being as wholesome as bing crosby playing a priest i'm not taxing it for that i'm not okay so what's your final number 8.5 so that's an 8.75 average between the two of us Novelty. It started the genre for the most part. I think it borrowed on some concepts from the Maltese Falcon. It borrowed on some foreign concepts. It wasn't completely novel, but it was pretty close. So I'm going to go with a nine. Okay, so we're going to reverse on this category from the last one. I went with an 8.5. Again, there were other crime dramas that were kind of leading into this, and I don't think that it's completely unique for the era, given how many others were made, but this kind of created the archetype formula, and particularly that of the femme fatale. And I know you mentioned Mary Astor from The Maltese Falcon, but I just think that Phyllis Dietrichson kind of gets into a class of her own and thus reshapes what the femme fatale would be known as in this genre. Plus the concept of the voiceover narrator that would be used in many other noir films. I have to give it some additional points up for that. I do think films that we have either covered or are going to cover, such as Sunset Boulevard, 
Key Largo, the Asphalt Jungle, etc. from this era were all made on the backs of this film. So even though it might be borrowing on stuff that came before it, I do think that others borrowing from its framework also leads to some novelty from that side of it. So I ended at an 8.5, and it'll again be an 8.75 average between the two of us. Classicness. I had a hard time finding much that was not solid about this. I mean, ultimately, the dominant character in this film in the 1940s is a female. Barbara Stanwyck is really the badass in this entire film. And so putting her in that position, I think, was rather daring and bold, both from the novel or the writing standpoint of the novel and the screenplay, but for film in general. I couldn't find too much else that I found that would be difficult. I didn't see, maybe to some extent, the subservience of women in general. But given the fact that Stanwyck is pretty much dominating the men around her, I can't give it too many points down. So I went with a nine for classicness. This story feels timeless in that it feels like it could still happen today. Woman and her boyfriend conspire to kill husband for insurance money. Hasn't that not been the plot line of numerous movies and crime TV shows for the last 30 years? I mean, seriously, it's something that could be written on just about any local newspaper across the country now. It happened within people that we know. I sat and watched part of the homicide trial, and I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but there was people that we knew that the father was murdered by his wife and her lover, and that happened about uh, 15 years ago. So it happens not only in stories, but in real life. In addition... I have to give you credit for, yet again, identifying a fairly strong female character. And great performances by everyone else from a rather small cast. So, I give it two points up just for Phyllis and the archetype of noir femme fatales going forward that I think she became the basis on, as opposed to the Mary Astor character who's a little bit more fraught. This one is a much stronger character and not always seeming like she's between one extreme or the other and is much more deceptive that she seems more sociopathic than Aster does. So I give it also an extra point up for its timelessness. Starting at a 7, that gets me to a 10. Okay. So that's a 9.5 average between the two of us. Rewatchability. I'll give it a 7.5. I think this is a little bit above the normal, and I really enjoyed this viewing of it the second time. I It wasn't necessarily one that, on first viewing, that I was really enamored with, but this last time, I would p- bump it up just about a half category from not only just an important film, but one that could be on every couple of years that I revisit and kind of come back to. So, for me, 7.5. I went with 8.5 just because the subject itself is rather heavy and because the pacing is such that you have to pay attention for the first part of the film. Obviously, it's a little less after you've seen it, you know, six or seven times. But still, 
I mean, it's probably been four or five years since I saw it the last time. So, yes, I, I can't go any higher than that, so that's why I went with 8.5. This is a good subtitles film because there's a lot of great dialogue and exchange between the two of them early on in this film that you really want to get all of the timing for. Yes, baby. Shut up. <laughs> eh. So that leaves us with audience score. We had a 90% for Google users and a 95% for Rotten Tomato users for a 9.25 score overall. So to repeat the categories, we had a 7 for Legacy, 8.75 for Impact Significance, 8.75 for Novelty, 9.5 for Classicness, an 8 for Rewatchability, a 9.25 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 51.25 and placing it on the list between the good, the bad, and the ugly, and network. Mm, Yeah. Sometimes I think we do pretty well. It's about right. So, remaining questions. I don't really have any. Well, I think the biggest one is whether Walter dies. Basically, if he bleeds out. Of course not. No, he'll get to the hospital. He'll have shock. They'll get blood into him. They'll give him an IV. He'll survive. He'll get patched up so he can sit in the electric chair. All right. And I guess I'd really like to know what Phyllis's true plan was the whole time. Well, really? She conspired to get into the good graces of a very wealthy man. Then she conspired with somebody to kill him while she's also conspiring with her stepdaughter's boyfriend who she will ultimately blame for killing the murderer of her husband. And then she'll walk out of this with all the money and nobody knowing anything and being the wiser for it. Well, she wouldn't get the money if it was still a murder. She would just get out of the charges. I'm not sure, but... Well, if they deem it a murder, they're not going to deem it an accident, and so the insurance wouldn't come through. I think ultimately she had this all figured out. She'd end up with the money, and everybody else was going to be dead. Well, clearly not, because she had something she didn't anticipate. Uh, Well, yeah, you don't have... There's always something you don't anticipate. But still, that's not the plan. Okay, so then, final thoughts for the week. I know you recorded Glenn or Glenda to pay off our Academy Award bet for 2022. I'm looking forward to hearing it, and I hope anybody who's listening to the show will will, uh, listen to it as well and enjoy your difficulty in dealing with one of the worst films ever made. Let's just say Bella Lugosi really came out rather scathed in this movie. (laughs) We're going to have to at some point in time do Ed Wood with Johnny Depp. I love that film because it's so odd. Well, it is kind of the behind the scenes of the making of that film, so... Among others. Planet Nine from Outer Space. Yeah. Where they used a Mercury, or uh, which was a... I think they don't do Mercuries anymore. Ford used to have Ford, Mercury, and Lincoln. Mercury. They used a Mercury hubcap to portray the spaceship on a fish line. Ooh, and bob it along in the in the camera angle. It was so bad. 
Well, listen to my review and you'll know that Glenn or Glenda wasn't that much better as far as production <laughs> value. Uh, I think for this next year, I may just say that you have to watch Animal House. Okay. Which you hate. Yes, I do. Because it's not funny. <laughs> yeah, okay. For my final thoughts, I will recommend a movie that has not actually yet come out. I got a early screening from the University of Wisconsin living here in Madison for the movie Women Talking, which is, I think, a beautifully crafted film about some Mennonite women in 2010, which becomes a key factor in the, in the film. You wouldn't think it would, but it does who are discussing whether or not to leave or stay and fight in their colony once it's discovered that several of the men have been arrested and taken to town for sexual assault. Ah. And the group or the colony has asked the women to forgive the men. So they are forced into a very awkward and difficult choice, and they end up selecting three families— only two of which really end up participating in this discussion over what they should actually do. And they end up becoming the basis for what is the decision for everybody else in the colony. It's a wonderfully made film by Sarah Polly. And I thought it had some of the best thematic work of the year for a subject that I think is very difficult to talk about. And even though it's not immediately present day, it still feels like it's grappling with a lot of the issues that we've had, especially in Hollywood for the last couple of years. And I would have thought a film like she said would probably take the mantle on that given its subject matter of the two women from the New York times who end up doing the Harvey Weinstein expose. And that that would be kind of a front runner for this year's race, particularly due to Hollywood wanting to take its own self-examination on all of the stuff that surrounded Weinstein, who was pretty much made by the Oscars over the course of the 90s and the 2000s. But this film, I think, is actually a little bit more, even though it's not about that subject, is a little more coherent and ingenious in its storytelling for taking a story that isn't necessarily immediately or directly about that thing, but discussing a lot of the topics that have been difficult over the last couple of years. So I would highly recommend, I think it comes out either in early December or I think maybe early January for most people. I'd have to look. But uh, I would highly recommend when it does come out for everybody to watch it. I think it's probably the best thing I've seen so far this year. One last thing. I watched Inside Man, which is a four-part streaming series that was on Netflix. Stanley Tucci, who I love, I don't think there's anything he's been in that I don't find extremely watchable. He uh, is a murderer who helps solve crimes. And I, I won't go anything further than that, but it was well worth the commitment of four hours to watch. That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing Rocky II from 1979, directed, written by, and starring Sylvester Stallone, with Carl Weathers, Talia Shire, Burt Young, Burgess Meredith, and Tony Burton. 
You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com, sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.